You may be seated. <laughs> we're talking about being set free. We're singing about it. Now we're going to talk about it just real briefly before we go to John 6. So take your Bibles and go to John chapter 6. Scott, Jess, and, and many others are away on vacation, and they went to North Carolina. Can you believe it? And so God made a way for them to make it to the North Carolina coast, and so uh, they're on their way <clears throat> down there. And so let me get a drink of water. I think the allergy thing is starting to get me. I appreciate Kevin Rasky, right? Rasky. Uh, and so, and his wife. What's your wife's first? What's your first? Jenna? What is it? Jenna? Don't ask me to spell that because I'm not, I'm not good at that. So uh, they're here to help us to enter into the worship of the Lord. And so they're from, Matt Townsend is a friend of mine out in Philadelphia, Harvest Bible Chapel. And so if you're ever in the Philly area downtown, um, is it downtown? You're in King of Prussia, right? King of Prussia. Uh, so it might be a good church for you to visit. Let me go back to the set free because I really sense during the song, one of the songs that, that people need to be set free, not from sin and death, which we were singing about, which is awesome and part of our Christian profession, but also set free from religion. That's what was coming to me during one of the songs. And so I think that religion can really be a stronghold, right? Are you with me on that? And so if you understand what I'm talking about and you sense that there is some kind of a, maybe a hindrance to you, hindrance to your worship, hindrance to you entering into the fullness of God because of a, a religious stronghold or a, maybe a call it a spirit of religion, uh, we want to pray for you. So this is going to take some courage. Raise your hand if that is you. You sense a religious stronghold of some sort. Anybody else? Anybody else? Just lift up your hand nice and high. Real high, real high. Father, we pray that you would help us. Help us to be free. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for setting us free from sin and death. We thank you for the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. And we know that our redemption is in Jesus. We know that we are a Christian. But yet, religious things, Lord, have attached themselves. Maybe a culture of religion that has gripped us. And we're trying to be more free and full of the spirit of the Lord. And we're having a difficult time. So for those hands that went up, God, we pray in this moment, in this prayer, that right now you're doing an amazing work of setting them free from religion, religion. And so your word says you haven't given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. And so God, help us not to walk in fear. I just really believe that there is a, a fear thing there. And we don't need to walk in fear, amen? We need to walk in freedom. We need to live in freedom. So grant that, Lord, maybe even through the text of Scripture too. We thank you, Lord, for Kevin and his dear wife being here with us. We pray blessings on them, Lord. Thank you for Harvest Bible Chapel in Philadelphia. Blessings and anointing on them, God. And now help us to get into John chapter 6 and understand what your word is saying to us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen? All right, so go to John chapter 6. I want to continue in this series we're calling Halfway. If you were with us last week, we talked about getting unstuck. So the first place that we go, the first thing that we do is to get unstuck. And I want to be in the whole chapter of John chapter, or sixth chapter of John's gospel. And so make your way there. And uh, we looked at getting unstuck last Lord's Day. Of course, it was the feeding of what is known as the 5,000, but there's more than 5,000. There's the, the wives and then there's the children. So you're looking at about 20,000 people. So I'm not sure how many First Energy seats. Does anybody know how many seats are in First Energy Stadium? Let, yell it out. I don't care. Anybody know? 
about seven or 8,000. Probably double that and a little bit more is the people that Jesus was feeding miraculously. It's the feeding of the 5,000. That is the primary event in John chapter 6. It's the miracle of all miracles when it comes to his earthly ministry. It is one of those things that really was meant to display his divinity, that he is the son of God, but it's also meant for some other things. And we're looking at what it means to go further than you've ever gone with God before. And so the first thing we looked at was getting unstuck, going from seeing to believing. There's a tension of trust that we all will find ourselves in. And so it's like you believe God, but you don't believe God. You know that God wants to do something phenomenal in your life, but yet you're still, you're still struggling with some of these things that we looked at last Lord's Day. So you're in this tension of trust is what I referred to it as, or seeing and going from seeing to believing. What's the word of God say? Someone said, God help my, uh, I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe, but help my unbelief. There is that going from seeing to believing, that tension of trust. Have you experienced that recently? Have you experienced going halfway with the Lord and you know that he has so much further for you to go, but there's this seeing to believing thing. There's this tension of trust. So we looked at that last Lord's Day, getting unstuck, seeing supernaturally, not just seeing naturally. You got to be able to see into the supernatural. You got to be able to see things that that not the naked eye we're talking about. We're talking about the spiritual eye. We're talking about that Holy Spirit-empowered way to see life. And we're so conditioned for the natural that we don't even know what the supernatural is as Christians, especially if you're raised in a religious environment. If that is a religious environment, then, then anything supernatural, anything miraculous, anything other than just the, the run of the mill, going through the motions, it's a lot of academia, and it goes into your brain. And you might have Bible knowledge, but you don't know the power of the Spirit of God to open up your eyes to be able to see things supernatural. That's where we need to go, and that's where we're trying to go. We're trying to go ha beyond halfway. So getting unstuck was the title of the first message last Lord's Day. Let's look at the title of the message for today, Who's in Control? I want to look at verses 15 down to verse 21. So take your eyes there. Chapter 6, verse 15, down to verse 21. The Bible says, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And when evening had come, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing, and when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Let's talk a little bit about this, knowing who's in control. Whenever you talk about control, you get two responses. You either get a twitch, like a trout out of water, or you get somebody that's salivating like a tourist at Shady Maple. I mean, you get one or two of those extremes. And so you have, you have these people that were under this bondage of a controlling person. It could be your spouse. It could be somebody that you know. And a boss is controlling over you. You know, maybe it's a mom or dad that was controlling over you. And so you, know, you got a twitch right now. You're trying to deal with all of that. Or you're the other side of the spectrum where you're salivating because we're going to talk about control and you're a control freak. You're like, yes, that is me. What's it mean to be in control and who is in control? Let me ask you some questions. Follow along on this. Have you ever known someone who says to you that they know your problem even before you told them? 
Do you know a person who can't understand why anyone sees things differently than they do? We're talking about a controlling person here. That they get upset when you don't follow their advice. They have a personal rule book, and they get upset when you don't follow their personal rule book. Do you have one of those? I mean, do you carry that thing with you? You're just like, yeah, he's not following my rules. He's not doing what I asked him to do. We're talking about who's in control. It's usually you say to these people that they're a controlling person. They go, not me. It's not me. I'm not controlling. God is in control. That's a good thing. Man in control, not good. Both can't be sovereign at the same time. All right, good or bad? You tell me if this is good or bad. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, the Bible says the love of Christ controls us. Good or bad? It's not a trick question. If, if Jesus is controlling us, is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing. I'm not going to call anybody to come up front and give an answer. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 4, good or bad? Ready? Each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Good or bad? It's a good thing. We need to know how to control our body. The Bible says a lot about self-control, but what we're talking about here is sovereignty. We're talking about ultimate control, knowing that God is in control, that he is the one who is sovereign, that is ruling, that he's the king. Now, what does God do in our life to help us get to the point where we really know that he's in control? Are you ready for this? Now, some of you are going to start twitching, right, because you're going to talk about some control, and you're going to go into a wrestling match by the end of our message today, but that's not a bad thing. Because God's going to win every wrestling match that he has ever had with anyone. And so when you give up the wrestling match and you tap out, that's what they do in wrestling, they tap out, that means you're done. And when you're done to you controlling your life, you're going to go beyond halfway and further with God than you've ever been before. So what does God do? Let me give you five of these. You can write them in your little handout there. Number one, that God does this. He does this by removing his presence on our self-effort. Verse 15. Now, I'm not talking about his, his positional presence. I'm not talking about that you have lost your salvation. I'm not talking about that Jesus leaves you and you're cut off from him. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about his felt presence. I'm talking about his blessing on your life. In verse 15, if you look there, perceiving then that they were to come and take him by force, this is the crowd this is the crowd that he had just fed. They got all excited about this. They think he's a prophet. And now they want to take him by force and make him king. And Jesus did what? What did he do? He withdrew himself from them. God is not going to honor your self-effort. He's not going to honor your agenda. If you think that you can live your life apart from Jesus Christ ruling over you, then you're going to try to go a certain direction in your life, and God is going to withdraw his favor. He's not going to cut you off relationally. You don't lose your salvation. It's kind of like grieving the spirit of the Lord. Have you ever grieved the spirit of God before? Does anybody, does anybody know what I'm talking about here, Andy? It's like, it's like does anybody know how to, that you can grieve the spirit of God? How do you do that? You sin. You sin in your mind. You sin with your mouth. You have an attitude. You have a habitual pattern of lifestyle. That grieves the spirit of God. And how many people have ever felt that, the, that God has left them? that there's no felt presence of the Lord. That's what we're talking about. Now, when you repent, and then the, the presence comes back, the manifest presence, you can sense that he's with you again. That's what we're talking about. So there's this withdrawal of his presence from our self 
effort. And so they had their own plan. They had their own agenda. This crowd wanted to do their own thing, and they wanted to make Jesus king. A halfwayer in the text. There's all halfwayers in this crowd. I think most of the crowd in the context of chapter 6 of John are halfwayers. I even think that most of the crowd in John 6 are non-Christians. I really believe that. I don't think you have at verse 66, it says many of his disciples decided not to walk with Jesus anymore. I don't think that's a carnal Christian. In fact, I don't even know if there is such a thing as a carnal Christian. And so this isn't them saying, you know what, I just don't want to follow Jesus. I believed in him at one point. Now I don't want to follow him. And they go completely the other way and you never see them again. Those people aren't saved. That's what the whole point of John 6 is. True Christians, false Christians. True disciples, false disciples. And so Jesus is laying out all of this so that we can see how to go beyond halfway for the true Christian. For those who really have the spirit of the Lord inside of them. And so you have this battle in the crowd for sovereignty. Their plans versus God's plans. Their agenda versus God's agenda. They wanted the self-life and not the savior life. They wanted to go their own way and not God's way. Listen, staying halfway is a battle of control. It's a battle of control. Will you release control? To go further with God, you've got to get to this place where you understand that if you want your way, you're going to have Jesus and the Holy Spirit pull back on your self-effort. And you have got to get to the place where you are not white-knuckling your Christian life. Right? You know what a white-knuckle person is? You've been on a roller coaster before, right? I hate roller coasters, man. I ride the park bench. That is my speed. That's about as fast as Lisa and I go at the park bench. You know, but I don't get on, I don't get on roller coasters because I get ill. And so I don't, but you know what? When I've been on them, I white-knuckle. So you grab onto that bar, and this is a lot of Christians. They are so white-knuckling their own life. That, that you can see, I mean, you can literally see it in their eyes, you can see it in their face, you can see it in their behavior, and they're holding on to their agenda. Their plan is what they want to have executed. And until you stop white-knuckling your Christian life, you'll never go further with God than you've ever been. You'll never go beyond halfway. You've got to release your grip. Isn't that what Jim Elliott said? Four other missionaries in Jim were speared to death in Ecuador in 1956. Don't you know that that's what Jim Elliott said in his journal? That he said, God, help me to release my grip on everything temporary that I might receive the nail of Calvary. Help me to open up my grasp like you, Lord Jesus, who received all of this. That's what he said. I'm reading his journal. I got a chance to meet Elizabeth Elliot. I'm looking at her, his Bible and his journal. I'm like, ah. He understood. You got to release your grip on your life. And he gave his life away. And then countless millions and millions of people, and myself included, maybe some of you that know the story, have been blessed by that. One thing Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, and Roger Udary, and all the others, Pete Fleming, they didn't, they didn't want the, the felt presence of the Lord to leave. They, 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 were, they were communing with the spirit of the Lord in such powerful ways because they, really, they weren't white-knuckling their life. Why are you white-knuckling your life? Do you know what's going to happen to you? Because God loves you, he's going to pry your fingers one at a time off of what you're holding on to. That's what he's going to do. So you can leave the auditorium today and say, you know what, I'm just going to keep holding on. Well, he's going to force you to let go. He will force you to do that. Until you say, okay. The presence of the Lord is withdrawing. He's not honoring the self-effort, not your agenda but God's agenda. 
In the text, Jesus goes to a mountain and he sends the disciples onward on to the Sea of Galilee in a boat. And so what's he doing up on the mountain? He's praying. He's praying. He's not going to allow them to take him by force and to make him king. He is the Savior. Number two, how is God going to get us to go beyond halfway? How is he going to get us to understand that he is in control? By number two, requiring us to walk in dark places. Verse 16. This is number two. Stay, stay with me. Requiring us to walk in dark places. Look at the verse. Verse 16 says, when evening came, and then if you go down to verse 17, it says it was dark. You're saying, okay, you're going to pull some out of there that really isn't in there. Well, I, I think we need to get into the, the context of what's happening here. I mean, you have Jesus sending them away into a boat across the Sea of Galilee. They're going from Bethsaida, which is on the eastern part. Now they're going back over west to Capernaum again. And he could have allowed them to travel during the day. But he's going to allow them to experience darkness. He's going to experience them to go into this place where they're not going to be able to really see ahead. They're not going to be able to see next steps very well as they're rowing across the, the Sea of Galilee. In Matthew chapter 14, this is the cross-reference of the same story. It says that the, the boat was being beaten by the waves. So you have this storm that comes down over the hills on the Sea of Galilee, and it can come very sudden. It can come very, very quickly on the Sea of Galilee. And so what happens is that, that Peter, in Matthew chapter 14, sees the Lord. He gets out of the boat, starts to walk. You remember the story. He looks at the wind, and what happens to him? He starts to sink. This is the cross-reference to this thing. John doesn't give you those details, but over in Matthew, he gives the details. And so when Peter saw the wind, he started to sink. And the Bible says that Peter was afraid. He was afraid. Of course, you know the rest of the story. Jesus reaches down, grabs Peter, and he comes up. But I want to go back to the darkness. I want to go back to the fact that they're in this place where they can't see very well. And again, here's the tension of trust. They're in the boat. They're traveling to Capernaum, and it's dark out. It's like God shuts the lights off. Have you ever had that happen to you before? I remember I have an older brother and a younger brother. We used to pick on each other ruthlessly. And so if I go down into the basement or some creepy place to our house, maybe up in the attic, and I get up there looking for something, you know what my brothers would do to me? What would they do? They turn the lights out, and that just led to a lot of, a lot of fighting, a lot of uh, issues between me and my brothers. I would do the same to them. We would turn the lights off <laughs> right when they were in the middle of the basement. And so just to aggravate. But this is what happens. God turns the, life out, the light out. He's not going to do that to aggravate you. He's going to do that to train you in the area of who's in control of your life. So if you have the light switch turned off, it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's a tough place to try to live in the dark. Anybody ever afraid of the dark here? Are you still afraid of the dark? Anybody want to admit that? You got a hand here? You can't see. We want to see. We want to see the next step. And so when you can't see around you, you can't see ahead of you, you don't know what's going to happen next, panic starts to set into our life, and then we start to freak out, and then what do we start to do? We start to white-knuckle again. We try to control our life. So when the darkness is around you, when it's surrounding you, and you can't see ahead, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's going to feel very unnatural, but it's very important for you to learn how to walk by faith. And so that's what happens when the darkness comes. You're not going to be able to see ahead. It's kind of like me having a volunteer come down here, and I put a blindfold over you, and I say to you, hey, listen, I want you at full speed to run from here out to the lobby without being able to see. I mean, you're going to be super hesitant. 
you know, you're going to be able to make it right over to here. Then you get a shin. You trip over the step over there. Then you start banging into the wall, maybe hit the light fixture. You're not going to be able to do very well going from here to there without being able to see. It's the same thing in the Christian life. You're going to be going through life, and all of a sudden the lights go out because God's going to allow darkness into your life. You're saying God wouldn't do that. Oh, yes, he will. <laughs> he will allow darkness to come into your life. He will allow people to sin against you. He will allow circumstances to come into your life that will be so traumatic. It'll be like, man, I can't see the next step. I need you, God, to show me the next step. But that is all good. It's not a bad thing. And so to think, oh, darkness is of the devil. And God. No, God uses all things to accomplish his purposes. And so he uses darkness to do that. And so every step that you're going to have to take is going to have to be taken trusting the Lord. Lord, I don't see five steps ahead. Yeah, God's going to say to you, you don't need five steps ahead. You just need one step. I'm going to give you light for one, and then I'm going to give you light for number two, and then light for number three, and then you're just going to start walking, right? Remember that Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and there was the Winter Warlock? Does anybody remember that classic? You have to be a certain age to remember that, right? And so in part of the, the, the animation, it was the Winter Warlock, and he had never walked before, and so he just kind of floats around and, and all of that. And so Chris Kringle wants to try to teach him how to walk, and so he's, just, he's on his legs, and he just can't hardly move, right? But what does the song go like? Put one foot in front of the other. Come on, join me. <laughs> You'll be walking across the floor. Put one foot in front of the other. Sorry, Kevin. <laughs> it's like then all of a sudden he's just like, it's the same thing with God. Put one foot. And that's all the light you're going to get. And then you're like, God, I need some more light. It's too dark. Yeah, I'll give you light in a moment. Just trust me right here. And eventually, you're going to be able to walk differently. You're going to learn that, that God's going to do this to try to teach us that he's in control and we're not. Number three, here's how he does it. We're going beyond halfway, further with God than we've ever been. Number three is realizing that his timing and ours are different. You've got to realize that his timing and our timing is different. If you look at verse 17... It says there, he got into a boat and started across the Sea of Capernaum. They got into a boat. It was now dark, and Jesus, watch this, had not yet come to them. Have you ever been in a part in your life, and you're thinking, Jesus, where are you? Where are you? You're late. You should have been here by now. Remember Lazarus? You remember when he died, and his sisters, Mary and Martha, was like, where were you? If you would have been here, my brother, our brother would not have died. It's timing. It's timing. Jesus knows what he's doing. And so he waits. He's saying, not yet, not yet. And so in the text here, you have these disciples. And Jesus had not yet come to them. And, of course, they're in a situation that's very difficult, very hard. I don't know about you, but the whole not yet thing was not good for me when I was a teenager, right? I wanted to go on my first date, right? And, and so when I, my parents were pretty strict. And so when I went on my first date, they made sure that they're with me, <laughs> you know? So it's like. Dad's driving me all around, you know, so, and I'm like, really, Dad, you know, can I, can I go on a date by myself sometime, and what did he say? Not yet, you know, and so the next time around, it was my mom that was with us, and it was like, you know, okay, so I got a little bit older, and I could drive, and all of that, and so I said, Mom, can I use your car, and she would say, not yet, I hated those words, I hated those, and it's not that much easier with God. God, when are you going to come to my rescue? When are you going to deliver me? Don't you see the situation? Can you just see the disciples in the, on the boat? 
you know, the storm, and, and they're just panicking, and they're trying in the dark, and they, they're not really getting anywhere, and it's like, God, where are you? Jesus, don't you know that I'm battling right now? Aren't you going to come? And he says, not yet. It's timing. And our timing and God's timing need to line up. Have you ever found that to be true, that your timing and God's timing is different? Are you with me on that? Okay, just making sure you're still out there. It's kind of hard to see with the lights. But they had to wait. They had to wait. Waiting's a hard thing, right? How many people know what it's like to wait for something that's super important? You just got to keep waiting and waiting and waiting. Got to keep waiting and waiting and waiting. What are some things that are hard to wait for? Just say them out nice and loud. What are things that you struggle with waiting? Anybody? What would they be? What context? What situation would that be? Nice and loud. Salvation of family members. Yeah, definitely. You guys are all good with waiting? Oh, next time I see you at the grocery store and there's like 40,000 people in line near the back of the line, I'm just going to walk over to you and go, hey, how's this experience going for you? We have a hard time. Yeah. Any kind of results from the doctor, waiting for anything that takes a lot of time before there's movement. And so God is saying to us, our, my timing and your timing is very, very different. So we're talking about self-effort and God removing his presence. We're talking about him allowing dark places of our life, dark situations, dark circumstances that we have to walk through. And then there's a timing issue that we have to understand, that we have to line up. And number four recognizing that circumstances will often go from bad to worse. Verse 18, if you'll look there again, verse 18, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Stop there. <laughs> okay, so they're on the boat, and, and things aren't going super well. I'm sure they're frustrated. It's dark. You know, they're not really supposed to be on the water at night. Uh, typically, if you're a, a person that understands boating, a friend of mine has a boat. We were up at Lake Winnipesaukee, and New Hampshire not long ago, and typically they don't want you on the water at night. It's hard to navigate. Can you imagine back in those days? Uh, and so being on the dark waters of the Sea of Galilee was, was difficult in itself. And, and then you have this, this storm that comes down upon them. And so the situation is literally going from bad to worse. Ever experienced that before? I can remember my life going like, oh, man, it's getting better. It's getting better. I'm starting to go up onto the mountaintop, and then all of a sudden, down again I go. And then I start getting hopeful again. I'm like, wow, this thing is looking like it's turning around. And then it doesn't. It's in those moments, those tensions of trust. This is what I'm talking about, going from seeing to believing. It's when, it's when something is going not well, but then it looks like it's going to get better. And then it gets worse. It's in that moment of time that God is showing to you who's in control. And this is where you're going to wrestle. This is where you're going to fight and scream and be frustrated. And, you know, you might turn, God, what is the deal here? And you might get angry at him, and he can handle that. But this is a tough place to be when things go from bad and they go to worse. It says a strong wind came upon them as they're rowing uh, in the Sea of Galilee. Storms would come over the hills and come down upon the waters, and the waters could get very, very treacherous. It reminds me of when Lisa and I were in Puerto Rico some years ago. We wanted to go out quite a distance from shore onto a, a coral reef, and so we rented a tandem uh, 
kayak. And so we were out there. It was such a good experience, wasn't it, hon? And so we're out there, and we got out of our kayak. People know where I'm going with this, right? I'm setting it up for some disaster, right? And so we were out there. We spent some time on top of the reef. It was cool because you could get out of your kayak and, and walk, and you're way out there, you know? And so anyhow, we were out there just having a good old time, and then I noticed in the distance there's some dark clouds, and the wind starts to pick up. And I say to Lisa, I said, we need to get back in the kayak and start heading back to shore. And so we get back into the kayak. And so, you know, I'm in the back, and she's in the front. You know, and, and she's just trying to soak up the rays and get a tan, and I'm just like, whoa, it looks like I'm doing the only thing here, you know, and I'm looking at the wind, I'm looking at the clouds, you know, and I'm saying, hon, I said, we need, we need to get going. We need to start moving quick. And so I, at the end of that whole thing, I was just like, Lise, row, 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 because the wind was so powerful, and it was pulling us out to sea. I mean, it was scary. Here they are rowing in their boat. And they're struggling, and, and they're in this situation that looks like it's hopeless. And I know that there's some people in the house today that maybe that is your world. And a strong wind has come down into your life financially, relationally, physically, whatever it may be. And you saw a little bit of hope. You were like, oh, yeah, 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 things are turning around. But then, no. Yeah, things are turning around. Oh, yeah, here it comes, here it comes. But no. Tension of trust. This is where you're going to learn that God is in control and you're not. So why is it that some people go further in this moment of time? Why is it then when bad things happen and they go from bad to worse that some people turn? They turn and they, they walk away from the Lord and you never see them again. What's going on there? What's the problem there? Can I just say something and I tell you this because I love you? The gospel will always prevail. The gospel prevailed to save you. So when you were getting born again, you didn't get born again because you wanted to be born again. God, you got born again because God wanted you to get born again. And then he made you want to be born again. And all of that, the mystery of salvation, where he granted you the gift of faith and repentance, it says in Timothy. And so God's working this amazing gift inside of you where you're accepting Christ as Savior and Lord. That gospel could not have failed. When it was your time to get saved, it was your time to get saved, and nothing could stop that. And so God is saving you, and you're getting born again. It's wonderful. That gospel will not fail. Listen, that gospel still won't fail all along the way in sanctification. It won't fail in salvation, and it won't fail in your Christian growth. Sanctification, same word. So you're talking about your Christian growth. You keep growing, you keep growing, you keep growing. Something happens, something traumatic, something really bad you're derailed, something awful is going on. Do you know the gospel is still going to prevail in your life? That means any true Christian is always going to get past halfway. Those who go halfway and they never go past halfway, are they really saved? If they turn around, like 66, verse 66 says, many of his disciples turned away, are they truly saved? They're not. The gospel will always prevail. It's the power of God unto salvation. It saved you in salvation. It will save you in sanctification. And when you're going through the deep waters or the dark waters, you're going to need to know that your salvation will never fail. It'll never fail. You're saying, but I feel like I fail all the time. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, we fail all the time, but God never fails. And so he comes to your rescue. He gets you past halfway. You're going to make it. You're going to make it. That's assurance. That's called the doctrine of assurance. Your assurance isn't dependent on you. Your assurance is dependent on God. It's his salvation. It's his gospel, and it never fails. 
So if you know somebody that they turned around, never came back to Jesus, but they made a decision way back here in vacation, Bible school somewhere, but they don't care about the Lord, they don't think about the Lord, they don't go to church, they don't read the Bible, they don't do it, they're not living holy lives, they're not born again. They couldn't have been. The gospel never fails. It never fails. There is hope. And then number five, number five and finally, how does God get us to go beyond where we've ever been before and past halfway and realizing that he is in control and we're not? This is verses 19 down to verse 21. Resisting to help us where we think we can handle it. Look at verse 19 again. It says there, and when they had rowed about three or four miles. Did you know that the Sea of Galilee at the northern part was about eight, nine miles? So literally they're halfway across the Sea of Galilee going from Bethsaida to Capernaum. So they're halfway. It says that they're rowing. I don't know about you, but rowing a boat for four miles. We're just so used to pull the, you know, push the button, pull the ripcord or whatever, and the motor starts and all of that. But here they are, they're rowing for three or four miles. They saw Jesus walking on the sea. Jesus doesn't come alongside of them in a boat. Jesus isn't like, hey, fellas, you know, swimming next to him. He comes walking on the water. Have you ever thought, why? Why walking on the water? What's the deal with that? There's tremendous significance there. But I want you to see this, resisting to help when we think we can handle something. And so they're rowing, they're rowing hard, like Lisa and I were rowing hard out in the waters in Puerto Rico. They get about halfway across the Sea of Galilee. And I'm sure that they were frustrated. I'm sure they got to that point where it was like, you know, I'm totally and completely exhausted. You know, I don't even know if we're going to survive this thing. I remember being a youth pastor, and the youth pastor always had to have the most difficult teenagers. All of my helpers, we went on this huge camping trip, had over 100 teenagers in tents. It was amazing. It was amazingly crazy, but it was, uh, it was an amazing experience. But we had 100-plus teenagers. I had about 20 to 25 helpers, adult helpers. And so we had these really tough teenagers. They weren't bad kids, but they were just high-maintenance kids. You know, and so um, some of the workers were like, Chris, we just can't handle these kids, so would you take them? I'm the youth pastor. You know, I, I took these kids. So one girl was sitting in the front of my canoe, and we're going three or four miles down this river, and the river water wasn't super high, so at times you had to get out of your canoe or your kayak and start carrying it. You know, so I had this girl. She's sitting on the front like she was some kind of movie star. She wasn't helping at all. So you got to picture me in the back. So I'm in the back of this canoe. She's at the very front end of the canoe. She has a paddle, and she's not using it. Okay, then there's a girl that's sitting. Remember, these are difficult, high maintenance. Love them. I love them. I did. I love them. Uh, but she's sitting in the middle. She has these really big sunglasses. Back in the 90s, these sunglasses were, like, really huge. You know, she's just sitting there, and she's kind of just waving at everybody like she's in a parade. You know, I'm like, then I have this kid in the back of me. I'm towing him on a, on a tube. His name's Billy. You know, and I'm like, okay. I'm, I'm like, frustrated. It's been about three miles you know, I'm sweating, I'm nervous, I'm not going to make it the whole distance. I got this girl in the front, I got another girl in the middle, and I got Billy in the back. I'm like, Billy, can you give me a hand, man? Kick a little bit. You know, and it's so, I can just see the disciples like that. They start turning on each other. It's like the waves are beating on them, you know, and the darkness and the storm, and they're just frustrated. This happens to all of us in life. And this is what's going on here, and they're trying so hard to make it on their own. And so, listen, some of you guys are trying so hard. You're trying so hard to make it without God's help. Don't do that. 
Don't do that. Jesus shows up, and he's walking on the water. I love that. Now, what's the significance of him walking on the water? Do you know what it is? This is so powerful. He's putting on display that he's sovereign over the elements, over nature. He made the water. It says that in Colossians. So he was partnering up with the Father, and they're making everything way back. And so he can walk on water because he's commanding the water to obey him. So he's not swimming. That wouldn't have been a big deal. He's not pulling up in a boat alongside of them. He's walking on the water, and he wants to put on display that he is sovereign even over the creation. Now, if you think that you're sovereign over creation, I want you to give it a try sometime. If you have a swimming pool or if you're at the beach, I want you to go up to the water's edge, and I want you to command the water to hold you up. Give it a try sometime. You can even use one of those authoritative God voices like, water, hold me up. And then I want you to take a first step and see what happens to you. That's because you're not sovereign over the creation. And so this is beautiful. He's walking on the water and he's saying, fellas, I just want you to know that I'm in control of everything. I'm in control of everything, even the water. Your life, the water, the circumstances. It says in verse 21, if you want to take your eyes there, it says, they were glad to take him in. <laughs> That's fantastic. And so they, they say, Jesus, come in. This is a horrible situation, Jesus. They're done with themselves. They're done paddling. And some of you guys keep holding me. You're white knuckling your paddle. You know, you're going to try to do this thing without God, and God's going to say, all right, you're going to tire yourself out, and I'm going to make sure you tire yourself out. That's what he's going to do. He's going to say, you want to do this on your own? Go ahead. Go ahead. And then you're going to be like, okay. And then at that point, you go from seeing to believing. The tension of trust is now broken. And you have gone past halfway. But you're holding on. And he's going to say to you, you can keep going as long as you want. Go ahead, keep trying. Keep trying. I love this. They say, Jesus, would you come into the boat? What's he saying? Oh, okay, please come in. I'm done. <laughs> would you ask Jesus today to come into your boat, quote, unquote, your circumstance, your situation, whatever it is that you're facing? Would you say, Jesus, okay, I'm laying down the oar. I'm not going to row anymore. I want you to come into the boat. And what does it say happens when he got into the boat? Did they have to keep rowing? All of a sudden, they're like at the water's edge in Capernaum where they're supposed to be going. Miraculously, Jesus transports them from four miles in all the way to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. God can do miracles as long as we realize that we can't handle it anymore. So here they are, number five, or there's five of them. Removing his presence from you, this is what he'll do from your self-effort, requiring us to walk in darkness, realizing his timing and ours are different, recognizing, number four, circumstances will often go from bad to worse, and resisting to help us until we realize that we can't handle it. Kevin's going to lead us in a song. It's going to be a song of dedication. And as he comes up here to do this, here's where the wrestling match happens. Now, let me just ask you a question without buying your heads and closing your eyes. How many people would say, yeah, I do struggle with some forms of control? Raise your hand. Some forms of control. Look, look around. Look around, everybody. This is, this is everywhere. All right. How many people want to go beyond halfway? Seriously, you want to go beyond halfway? Do you want to get into a wrestling match with God during the song? 
because you're going to wrestle right now. And you're going to have to tap out. I tap out, God. I'm tapping out. You win. You're in control. I'll do it your way. Let's stand to our feet. Let's worship. Father, we pray that you would help us to worship you, not just with a song, but help us, oh God, to worship you by laying down our lives, by letting go of the oar, by stop our white-knuckling it. And so, God, you want us to go way beyond halfway. And you are in control. You're the sovereign of the universe. If you could command water, Jesus, to listen to you and to hold you up, uh, Lord, help us to realize this great truth that uh, you created the elements and you're controlling those. That means you're controlling all of the circumstances of our life. You're providentially moving and guiding us. And, but we confess to you with our hands raised that we have issues with control. And so during this song, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do a work, a wrestling match with our will. And may our will, may we tap out in so many different areas of our life and just say, okay, God, you are in control, and I am not. And so, Lord, Holy Spirit, oh, God, move during this song. May it be an offering of praise, but it also may be a, a prayer offering. In Jesus' mighty name, let's sing to his praise.